This episode is brought to you by Escape Makers On Demand Agritourism Training. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Hey there, HRN listeners. This is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears. I know that news about COVID-19 and the coronavirus has made a lot of people nervous about getting sick. This collective unease has already had a big impact on our restaurant and food communities, especially in New York's Chinatowns. We hope that now more than ever, our listeners will join us in supporting restaurants and the hospitality industry at large. Many of the restaurants we love are small, independent businesses. That means that even one or two bad weeks can put them in jeopardy of cutting staff, limiting hours, or even having to close for good. As long as we're still able, we should go out to eat and support our favorite restaurants. I think it's also great to remember that hospitality professionals are really good at hygiene and food safety practices. Long before there were guides all over the news about how to properly wash your hands, they were already experts at hygiene. Guests' health is tantamount to successful hospitality in any restaurant. And even if you don't want to go out, you can still support restaurants by ordering delivery, buying gift cards, and giving them some extra love on social media. What better way to handle a crisis than by supporting those in our own community? If we don't support them now, they might not be there when this crisis is over. Join HRN in supporting restaurants during this time, especially our friends in Chinatowns around the country. Thanks for listening. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Melissa Fuster for Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies in Fort Coralie. Can food serve as a tool to build bridges in, ter- in times of conflict? Asri Amram takes us to the Palestinian town of Kafir Kazim, the site of a massacre in 1956, which today serves as the site for food tours for Israeli Jewish food tourists. Asri is completing his doctorate degree in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology of the Ben-Gurion University in Israel, examining Jewish-Palestinian relationships in food spaces. Asri, welcome and thank you for joining us. Hi, Melissa. Hi, thank you for coming. Uh, Thank you for joining us again. So let's begin with your dissertation work. What motivated you to focus on using food spaces to examine Jewish-Palestinian relationships? Well, maybe uh, I'll start with the whole problematic situation between the Israeli Jews and Mm -hmm. the Israeli-Palestinian situation in Israel. First, I want to make clear that we are talking about 20% of Israel's population, as opposed to what uh, we call the Palestinians who live in the occupied territories, which is the Palestinian Authority. Mm I'm talking about 20% of Israeli citizens who live within Israel's border, and uh, they have uh, allegedly the same rights and duties as any other citizen in Israel, but we also know that they are formally and informally being discriminated. Mm -hmm. So when I'm talking about the relations between Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel, I'm practically talking about intercultural relationships inside Israel. So why it's so interesting? Because since 1948 and maybe a little bit earlier, these relationships are always tense. Mm-hmm. Always tense. And it always changes due to political and security situations that we have in here. And from our side, as an Israeli Jew, 
we always see them, of course, generalized as enemies, and they always see us as conquerors. Mm. And this is a problem left unresolved. Yeah, yeah, it is a, it is a very, very complicated subject, as you thank for, for, for that introduction. Um, so, so how is your experience studying these very complex subjects in, in Israel? As you know, and especially um, as an anthropologist, you know mm -hmm. that we often have very special and often personal connections to our research. So how, how do you think your own experience comes in as you approach this, this subject? Well, I think uh, the first thing that I heard when I told people that I'm renting an apartment in Kafar Kassim, this small town in central Israel, everybody asked me, uh, weren't you scared? Did they, they try to harm you? Were you disguised or came as you are? And I think that shows us exactly how people think about people who live in the next city, next to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, about 20 minutes from Tel Aviv, and those are cities or towns that people not usually go into. Mostly to fix their car, maybe, or to have some very good, authentic local dinner or lunch. And this is how, where the food spaces that I'm researching going in the picture. Mm -hmm. Because I thought to myself, if Jews and Palestinians in Israel are relating through uh, food, that would be a good place uh, to research that thing. That would be a good place to see those relationships between the Israeli Jews and the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Hence, I looked at about three spaces, different spaces, which are, uh, I guess, I looked a little bit different on each one of them. For the first one is uh, like bakeries and the uh, restaurants and food stands and the cafes, which have some kind of population that comes there. Mm -hmm. Another one is uh, the city local market, which operates on Saturdays and it's a very popular place. And the third one, which we're going to elaborate a little bit later, is food tours. Food tours for Israeli Jews that come, go on a bus, and go for a short trip around town. Yeah, no, and we will definitely dive into those uh, very interesting uh, food tours that, you know, your piece does such a great work at describing. But before we do, I'm, I'm interested to see if you can tell us a little bit about what you have found in these other spaces, like the bakeries and, and the market mm -hmm. and the restaurants. Excellent. So, for example, uh, when I'm talking about the popular local markets with Kafal Kassim, It's a very unique space where Jews and Palestinians work, shop, and hang out together. I found in this specific place that it offers some alternative social and political space for various groups which are suffering from oppression in the Israeli society. The market, I think, carries some elements of non-formality that allows low-income people, for example, or uh, immigrants, and illegal workers to feel somewhat comfortable in these spaces. It is a whole different population than the one I meet, for example, in the other food spaces, like restaurants, cafes, food stands, and bakeries. 
In there I found a whole different components of the environment that there is. For, in, for example, uh, there I found something that I wasn't expect, expecting to find at all. Due to extensive field work, I came to realize that many of the food business in Kafar Qasem relate uh, one way or another to this issue of kashrut. You know what kosher means? The Jewish dietary laws? Oh, oh uh, if you, it will be great if you can explain that to our listeners. Yeah, in general, there are some basic kosher laws that the Jewish dietary uh, is mainly not eating pork, also the separation of dairy products and meat, and also uh, not eating uh, seafood and other things that don't have, uh, which are not fish, essentially. Mm -hmm. So this is opposed to halal, yes. Islamic uh, rules, which basically means no eating pork and not drinking alcohol beverages and uh, and some other other things that you have in the fifth surah of the Quran. Mm -hmm. So what I uh, found during my field work is that Palestinian business owners adjust their food to the Israeli Jewish taste. And uh, they, are serving, they are serving several dishes which have certain shades of kosher. I call this chapter uh, 50 Shades of Kosher <laughs> because I actually found uh, some ways that they define kosher which uh, Israeli Jews don't define it. Hmm. And of course in Israel, I don't know if everybody knows, I guess most of our listeners don't know, the kosherness is like held as a monopoly mm. in the hands of the chief rabbinate of Israel, the authority that are uh, responsible for the religious issues in Israel. So what I see in those spaces, for example, is uh, a negotiation, an ongoing negotiation over the concept of uh, kashrut. And then I found three different uh, patterns. For example, one of them is what I call interceding kashrut, where people uh, suggest Israeli Jew diners uh, to have dishes that has some elements of koshering. They allow you to separate some of the things that, some ingredients that you may find inside and give you uh, dishes without this specific ingredient that makes it non-kosher. And all those routes, all those ways of presenting a Palestinian kosher food, which is a, a combination I'm still not sure of, hmm. I guess it's part of their willingness, the business owners, uh, to participate in shaping and redefining the components of the Israeli culture while criticizing its Jewish nature. As you know or not know, Israel is the Jewish state by definition, mm -hmm. so it has always this inherent tension between her being democratic and her being Jewish state. So this negotiation just fills the void. Yeah, that is that is very interesting. And is there pushback from from Palestinians uh, for, for these businesses to, to accommodate to the Jewish-Israeli dietary laws? One more time? Um, no, it's just that I'm wondering that it is very interesting what you mentioned that how local businesses, pa Palestinian businesses, right, 
are accommodating to, to the Jewish dietary laws. And I'm wondering if you have found any pushback from people that follow, for example, the, the halal dietary laws. Well, it's very interesting because, first and foremost, a kosher has this very unique label of being a supervised and clean, also mm -hmm. in the U.S., I guess. And some of the customers, which are also local customers, Palestinian ones, they also sometimes prefer their food being kosher. And then try to ask people how come uh, this kosherness is important for them. So first, everybody in business saying that it's for us to expand our clientele. Mm -hmm. We want people uh, having the ability to eat in our places. But if you go deeper, you understand that it is so much more than this. Sometimes they actually say it's not worth it economically. Mm. So you have to go and ask them about the social and political reasons that they are doing it. And then you find out that sometimes people say, well, this is what I think, how I should treat a minority in my business, meaning kosher eating Jews that come to eat in Palestinian cities. They are now the minority. Mm. So they are actually presenting what is the proper way to treat minority, as what they see. Hmm. That's the uh, first idea I heard. Second one is for very, very unique and quite rare places that are fully kosher, means supervised kosher by the chief rabbinate of Israel, and they are telling me that they prefer sometimes to have their food adjusted while we have we know what the meaning of changing food sometimes it would may hurt the tradition of the maker of the palestinian heritage of the palestinian kitchen and he says it is much more important for him to go and to reach out for people that may never try palestinian food uh, if it weren't be kosher. Hmm. So it's a negotiation they think about every time. And of course, we in food studies, we know sometimes what is the, uh, what is the outcome of such hybrid foods. We know sometimes that it is uh, hides uh, this notion of uh, post-colonialism, of people who have to do some kind of adjustments just to uh, survive. But I think this case is a bit differently because the Palestinian business owners hold the key. They don't have to. Mm -hmm. It means a little bit, very little of their uh, actual clients. It, I mean, it's their perception of what kosher is, not so much of the Jewish clients. And it's their perception in what they should act as Israeli citizens, and they know, I think, now more than ever, their ability to change what uh, Israel means today, which is mainly Jewish-centered culture. And I think more and more we're going to see what I hope to see, and I think this is like more of my bottom line of what I see in those old food spaces, mm -hmm. what 
is created to be an Israeli-Palestinian kitchen, hmm. which is today, of course, like oil and water. They don't mix. <laughs> but I do believe that in this specific uh, case that I have, that uh, the Palestinian business owners are agents of change, and they are taking uh, the responsibility of doing it. Hmm. Yeah, it's a... Uh, uh, yeah. It's such a interesting uh, topic uh, mm-hmm. and and thank you for bringing that perspective uh, that is something that is not covered in the article but it brings uh, a a very nice background to when we now move to talk about those interesting food tours so um, if you can so your your article again it focuses on on food tours in this Palestinian town that was also the site of a, of a massacre. So in order, before we get more into the tours and the very interesting complexities within that tour, those tours, can you give us a, a background of, of the town and also the, this unfortunate incident that happened in 1956? Uh, yes, I'll try to do it short. I know, it is a, I, yeah. I will say that when I read your piece, you did such a... I'm sure you spent so much time... <laughs> trying to, to go to the point, because it is a lot of history yeah. that, that you, you put in here. So please go ahead. Of so so, so this, this town, this small town, Kafar Kassem, is a, a small town in central Israel, like I told you, about 20 minutes from Tel Aviv, not that far from Jerusalem as well, which inhabited about by 25,000 uh, inhabitants, citizens of Israel, all Muslims. And they are citizens of Israel since 1948, since uh, uh, the war. Mm-hmm. On October 29, 1956, it was just before a war uh, we call uh, the Suez War, which was all the way down south uh, of Israel. But a night before this uh, war started, a night curfew was imposed on Kafal Qasim and other Palestinian communities all around. Then they were only 1,000 people. So the peasants returning from the field were not aware of the time of the curfew, that it was moved mm-hmm. forward. And then when they came back, they saw these border police officers who was ordered, were ordered to shoot them. For violating the curfew, yes. which you don't didn't know on. So this very, very unfortunate case of 49 men, women, and children that were murdered is like the main thing that people think of when they hear Kafar Kassem in Israel. Mm-hmm. It's a specific case that is known in the Israeli Jewish culture as an extreme case of giving an illegal order, of course, that must be disobeyed. Uh, after this massacre event, every soldier who joins the Israeli army now learns about this specific case and know that he should, of course, uh, disobey when he hears this kind of uh, illegal order. This is what we call a clearly illegal order. In mm-hmm. So... Many of the locals still today feel that the massacre have yet received the state recognition. There's no uh, 
Memorial Day, which is inside Israeli Jewish calendar, for example. Hmm. Uh, they, of course, memorize it by in, uh, Israel education system, for example, there's nothing about it, nothing formal. Yeah. And the families of the murdered and injured were never probably compensated. Hmm. To this day, the people of Fakasem feel that justice has not been done, and the state just didn't take the responsibility over this case. Uh, I think a few years ago, Ruby Rivlin, our uh, current uh, president, went there and asked them for forgiveness. And, they, of course, they gave him very big honor, uh, but they still couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't, couldn't get it as a, as a real apology. Because as long as nobody mentions it every day life or uh, calendarly, it's like never taking the full responsibility of this case. And the specific soldiers that were involved were all uh, convicted and sent to jail, but later on they were uh, pardoned. Mm. Okay, that's about the case itself. Mm -hmm. um, about the two itself, we're talking about Ramadan night, which is culturally, uh, culturally uh, centered tours. Mm -hmm. Meaning you are... Uh, we're reaching out for people, a whole different people than the one who come uh, for the uh, local market, different uh, population, the one who uh, you would see by uh, in the bakeries and the restaurants. It's more uh, high income, uh, what we call in Israeli Ashkenazi, which is uh, former uh, Eastern uh, Europe Jews. Mm -hmm. Uh, who comes to this, of course, left-wing identified uh, mm. people who are coming to these uh, tours. And the same as like food tourism, the whole idea of this thing is that you can actually bring people to talk about one thing, but eventually you are talking about something else. <laughs> it means you are talking about the customs of the Ramadan and about fasting and feasting. Mm -hmm. and about um, the cultural uh, uh, habits of this uh, festival. Mm -hmm. But when you are walking those streets, of course you cannot ignore some of the things that just pop to your eyes, and then you ha have, to have to ask some questions. Yes. You may ask, uh, what about the, uh, the sewage and the junk in the streets, for example? Or if you see some graffiti of uh, Jerusalem, then uh, people may ask, what does it mean? And usually it means uh, something that is heavily related to their main narratives as Palestinians, and of course as Palestinian citizens of Israel. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of food touring in these specific places I argue in this specific uh, uh, paper that it allows us the uniqueness of food tools to have some controversial messages, some hard-to-get knowledge uh, inside those tools. Mm -hmm. yes. And many people are going there to get one thing and getting the other, mm -hmm. but in a good way. Yes, yes. They're and... of course, sometimes surprised 
but it makes them think, and I think this is part of the discussion that is uh, later on, um, later on in the center of the tour itself. Yes, yes, and we'll, we'll dive right into that, but first, let's take a quick break, and when we return, we'll really dive into those complexities. This episode is brought to you by Escape Makers On-Demand Agritourism Training. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. These training workshops are on-demand and can be downloaded at any time. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The on-demand agritourism training will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available to purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2020 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. And we're back. Uh, this is Melissa Fuster from Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies in Fort Coralie. Before the break, Asri was starting to tell us a little bit about these food tours in this uh, Palestinian town that was also the site of the massacre. Um, so you mentioned, and one thing that, that's very interesting about these tours is that they take place during Ramadan, as you first, uh, as you just explained before the tour. Before, uh, before we get deeper into the tours, could you share with our listeners the significance of this holiday and how it is observed in, in Palestine? Uh, yeah, shortly, I will say that uh, Ramadan is uh, uh, the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, in which, according to religion, Muslims fast from morning until nightfall. So, uh, paradoxically, we're talking about food and food tours <laughs> in specific days that none of the people around us are eating. Everybody's fasting. Mm -hmm and the tour participants eat. And later on, it ends with iftar. After the tour, most of the tours go and sit in this local home where they're having the iftar, which is the fast-breaking dinner, mm -hmm. where after long day of fasting, everybody enjoys a, an amazing, rich dinner. And you know what? While mentioning it, uh, I'll give you an example Mm -hmm. Why it's so absurd, the thing that we are dealing with food uh, in the day where most of our people that we are visiting are fasting. Uh, so, for example, uh, just right before we sit down for the iftar, for the fast-breaking uh, dinner, uh, we go for a market. 
And uh, this is a, a very, very uh, small market that sells things that you need just uh, before you start uh, your dinner. Mm-hmm. And uh, this place has about 15 food stands that are already in place when the group arrives, an hour, maybe an hour and a half before the breaking of the fast. The site is full of shoppers. Many people are there just to go and have their last uh, things that they need. And of course, many of the tourists ask, can we buy it and eat it in spot or we need to keep it for later? Uh, the tour guide, which is a local one, he replies, no problem, you may eat it. Anyone in here can see that you are not from here, mm-hmm. not from around. So this is kind of their hospitality. But in the same way, of course, we know that it sounds a little bit strange for people eating in front of other people who haven't ate for long hours now. Mm-hmm. So one of the cases I had is a particular popular stand where some young youngsters were selling what we call awame, which is a sweet fried like donuts, small donuts. Uh, like uh, the donut holes in uh, Dunkin' Donuts. Mm-hmm. So one asked if I know this amazing delight and would you like to try it? And I said, no, no, thank you. I know it and um, I'm, I'm from around here. You know, I'm not a regular tourist. I enjoy them very much. I'll take some in the bag and I'll eat it later. And he says, come on, have one. It's a great one. It's just came out of the oil. It's hot great, it's the best mm-hmm. now. And I said, well, sorry, I'll take it for later and held it with this fork in front of my uh, face. And I said, you know what? I'll have one. And I tasted it and I said it was fantastic and tasted wonderful. And he looked at me and he says, have you no shame? How can you do it in front of me when I'm fasting? So of course, for a moment I was scared about quickly I understood that he was laughing at me. <laughs> and he and his friends, they were all joking. said, no, no, it's fine. We're just joking. No problem. We don't care. <laughs> so uh, this incident, I see it as a negotiation, a negotiation of what I can and can't do. Of course, this specific area was a joke, but we know in the anthropological uh, <laughs> literature what joke means. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it hides so much of what we are really want to know about this situation. They want to check me out and I want to check them out. And all the situation around this food shows me what I call uh, a symbolic uh, negotiations. People that check borders, checking boundaries with one another. Mm-hmm. No, and that, that was a very interesting anecdote. And I will say that There is also a very beautiful picture of, of that dish in, in the piece. So if anybody's interested, mm-hmm. they, can, they can look at it. Um, and, and as I was, you know, with anecdotes like that, uh, um, as a reader, I'm wondering, why were the food tours organized during Ramadan? Because it seems that there can be other times that you don't have this already added tension to a potentially, you know, tense situation. And is there pushback from people saying, stop bringing tourists here to eat while we're, fa- while we're fasting? Well, first thing, many people that see the tours are surprised 
and very happy about it mm-hmm. because they never knew there's something to see in their place. This mm-hmm. is a very common comment that I hear. What do we have to see in here? Why people want to come and see what we have to offer? That's first. Secondly, we're doing the Ramadan night tours because this is a very specific cultural, uh, very colorful event that people would like you to see. Think about like uh, in other places, the Christmas uh, market mm-hmm. or Christmas uh, events. Those are very colorful and invite you to come in and hear a little bit about our customs, about what we eat around the holiday uh, and everything. So this is perfectly fit for those kind of tours. Um, all year long, it's harder to bring people because there's no festivity around it. Oh, there's okay. no um, colorful uh, event. But uh, as I said, once you are going in Kafar Qasem, first, like any other Palestinian town, like any other town in the world, when you are too in a place, you have to get the sense of a place. And as I said before, the Kafar Qasem massacre is so central to this city and town and, uh, and people. It relics from this event is in every person. Everyone is from a family who were injured or murdered in this specific area. So when you are touring with local guide, you eventually get some of this. And uh, of course, we have to know exactly how much uh, to give from, uh, from what. It means you can talk about food and then go around talking about the, the social order and the political situation in this specific town. And then people would say, no, no, we came for a food tour. Mm-hmm. And then you can maybe go on and talk about the food and the customs and people would have to go and ask Come on, tell me something about you. Don't tell me about the food. I can go into Wikipedia and read about <laughs> Awame and Musahan and those foods. But I want to hear you. I want to hear your story, the town story. Mm-hmm. And those things are coming all together when you have this intensive food tour of five to six hours when you're doing different stops in this town. Of course, one of them has to be the memorial the massacre mm-hmm. when I asked uh, the organizers and the guide can't you have it uh, mentioned but not showing the memorial the the monument he says no I won't you can't understand Kafa Kassem if you don't stop at this point and talk a little bit about it and of course he's right mm-hmm. it's like the same way you cannot understand, I don't know, Paris, if you don't go to Eiffel Tower. <laughs> Maybe you can, but you have to get some of this uh, central feature of the town, central uh, element of the town. Yes, definitely. And um, in your, I mean, the central uh, part of your of your article is the idea of digesting a massacre, which you explain how how that is done like in this interesting dance between talking about food and talking about the history of the town but then you you also mention um and i want to now take us from the markets to the experience of going into people's homes 
mm-hmm. um, because again, uh, the digestion of, of that massacre happens with this specific dish, right? So if you can tell us yes. uh, about that and the experience of, of being in someone's home eating this dish. So first, I'm talking also digesting those harsh truths. Because when you're talking about the history, it's something that you need to digest when there is no other way to get it. But you're right that I'm taking it a little bit more uh, seriously when we go inside people's homes. Of course, many people say that this is one of the most influential things of the tour, Mm. because even if we had some local guide speaking, if we saw some of the monuments and the places of town, to be in someone's home, we have intimacy, which is so central to hospitality and uh, understanding people if you go into their home. So this is a major thing that I'm seeing when I hear people talking after this experience. One of the dishes that there is in this iftar, fast-breaking meal, is the musahan. Musahan is a traditional dish of Palestinian in general, but particularly in Ramadan, and even more particularly, it is recognized with the Kafar Qasim massacre Memorial Day. This is a dish of chicken, roasted chicken, uh, on a pita bread, on a layer of fried onion, seasoned with a purple lemony spice called sumak. Mm-hmm. And the dish is served in every home in town in October 29, the day of the, mas- the, day of the massacre. Hence, Many people call it the day of the Musakhan, or they call sometimes the dish, the dish of the massacre. Mm. So when I ask people, how come this specific dish uh, represents this day, which of course they eat it in Ramadan, uh, the Israeli Jewish tourists, and not on the massacre day. First they say, it's uh, very important for them to have this dish because it's very representative of the Palestinian kitchen. But later on, when you ask them about the connection between this musahan, this dish, to the massacre, uh, they have several interesting answers. Some says it is because a group of women was preparing the dish just as they received the news. Another version says that uh, it is the massive amounts of onion required for this dish that causes the one who cooks it to cry. <laughs> one suggested that it might be because it's a day off and it's, uh, you know, it's a very, very hard to make dish. Mm. And the day of the massacre is uh, each year it's a day off. Mm-hmm. So they have uh, many time to prepare the dish. And the uh, one of the most common answers is that the end of, the, of October is, of course, the olive harvest in Israel. Uh, olive harvest is something which is very affiliated with the uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians in general. And because it's the end of the olive harvest, many families have a large quantity of fresh olive oil, a significant component of the dish. 
So all of these answers are good. Mm-hmm. But the main thing that is everybody knows that the dish they are just eating right now, everybody eagerly and loving it, <laughs> it's the massacre dish and it's so recognized with the massacre and this day which is so important to every uh, citizen in the Kafar Qasem. Wow, yes, I know. And I do, uh, I hope our listeners are you know, become more and more curious because, again, there are so many interesting things in your piece that, you know, we cannot fit all of it in a in a single interview. But uh, just to, to close, if I may uh, ask you, and this is a big question to see if uh, we can answer it, uh, you know, in a, in a concise way. Um, these tours are, as you explain now and also in your piece, are a great way for to create these interactions. How are some, can you just share with us to close some insights that you have gained from these tours that could contribute to our understanding of the future of Israeli-Palestinian relationships? Do you see them, for example, as a, as a positive cha- sign of, of change of things to come? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take this answer for, uh, for two parts. The first one is, theoretically, when I'm talking about food tours, I really believe, and you should read this paper with our uh, listeners, I really believe that it's a very good way for any place uh, to have uh, people coming over, uh, food tourism. It's a very good way to have them uh, talking about social and political things that are uh, included in the tour. Never mind what you want to uh, show people. While you walk in the streets, you get some of the sense of a place. That's the theoretical idea of how to use food tours in places that need uh, some spotlight. Mm-hmm. About uh, Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens' relations, when I'm looking at these urban food spaces, all of them, this, the local market, the food businesses, uh, and the food tours, I see an ongoing negotiation of two cultures that want to check each other out all Mm -hmm. the time to see where it leads. And I believe it leads to a place where more and more Palestinian citizens of Israel would like to take more part of the Israeli culture But as long as the Israeli culture, which is right now mainly Jewish-oriented, will be open to get their Palestinian heritage, their Palestinian past, their Palestinian identity as Israeli Palestinians. Of course, this is a phrase that today no Palestinian citizen will sign on. They call themselves Palestinian citizens of Israel or the Palestinians in Israel, but never an Israeli-Palestinian because Israeli includes being Jewish. And this is what they are criticizing mm-hmm. about the Jewish nature of the Israeli state. And I do believe as long as we go farther and farther, the Israeli culture and Israeli state 
would have to get some of their demands for recognition, for understanding the pain of the past. And I think that's the only way that we can uh, go, uh, go forward. And I think Israeli citizens are willing to do it in some ways. And food, sometimes we see it as reflecting other social fields. And I do believe that what we do easily today in food spaces, like hybridizations of dishes, like I showed you, with the kosher adoption, like uh, the opening your homes to different tourists, like uh, uh, having these alternative spaces for people who are uh, less recognized in the Israeli society. All of these places are enabling an uh, alternative way of uh, treating each other as a... Uh, the citizens in the same state. And I think from the Palestinian side, they would have to go and participate more, take more part of the Israeli society and culture, and the Israeli society and culture will have to be much more civic, much more naturalized uh, to having it possible. Of course, having them, having all the rights and all the, the duties of any citizen in Israel. Well, well, thank you so much for sharing all of this work with us. Um, thank you for thank joining you for us. for having me. Of course. So for our listeners, if you would like to learn more about this research or other work featured in Gastronomica, visit gastronomica.org, where you can access the Spring 2020 issue for free until the end of the year or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, is an international interdisciplinary journal that presents new and original research, advances our understanding of compelling issues in the world of food, and invites critical debate and commentary across diverse audiences. We invite you to read and submit your scholarly and creative work. More details are available in our website. Gastronomica is supported by the University of California Press, and on behalf, on behalf of, the, of the journal's editorial collective, I want to thank the Heritage Radio Network, Meant to be Eaten, and its host, Coral Lee, for allowing us to share this miniseries podcast. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.